All right. Thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, thanks for taking some time out in your busy schedules uh, to hear from us and talk about uh, best practices for migrations. My name is Joe Chung. Uh, I'm an enterprise strategist with AWS. I've been with the organization for uh, just a little bit over, the, uh, over a year. Um, I'm also joined on stage by Simon Clark, who's coming to us from Dow Jones and will be uh, talking a bit uh, later about the story from that organization. Prior to joining AWS, I was with Accenture. I uh, had spent some time in consulting, uh, but the last kind of tenure of my time there was with our uh, internal IT organization, uh, Accenture IT. And before I left, I was responsible for enterprise architecture, a number of our core platform services, our digital strategy and our approach, uh, analytics, and a number of other areas. And we had a goal to be 90% in the cloud as part of a digital transformation journey that we were undergoing in our organization. When I left about a year ago, uh, we were 60% of the way there. And uh, last time I checked in with the team, there were about 80%. But as part of that journey, uh, we did a big lift and shift of our on-prem colo, colo data centers uh, to AWS, but also started to do some net new development. Over the last year, uh, just to tell you a little bit about the role of our team, is to really share our experience or my experience as a former customer with senior executives, CIOs, and CTOs, and just share all these the best practices that we've gathered, uh, not only from what I experienced as a customer, but now that I've had an opportunity to engage with many more customers uh, to share those best practices. I've also been part of our Migration Acceleration Program, so it's a program that we'll talk about briefly at the end of the presentation where we're trying to package up all of this best thinking and provide methodology, some investment and training to make that journey for those of you who are relatively new in this journey to the cloud and make that uh, path uh, much easier and stand on the shoulders of those who've gone before. Being an IT executive is really hard. Um, most organizations that I speak to uh, they, have, they come from environments where there's quite a bit of tech debt. You know, as for those of you who've been in IT for a long time, you know how it goes. You develop new systems. You're always focused on the next thing. You never have an opportunity to clean up what you've done in the past because of the pressures to be able to deliver to the market. And you end up saddled with a whole bunch of stuff that you wish you could have taken care of. But then on top of that, in this age where security uh, is you know, a concern for everyone, and then, you know, kind of to add to that, everyone is being challenged with this thing called digital transformation. But more and more, customers are coming to us and making the realization that cloud is a potential answer uh, in that journey to uh, retire tech debt, to modernize uh, IT, to even improve security posture. We've seen a pretty dramatic shift in thinking amongst organizations believing that, you know, cloud used to be this thing that you were sort of concerned with, you're afraid of, to now more and more a belief that cloud can actually help your security posture. But there are many different reasons. Most organizations I talk to these days are concerned about how do I get more agile? How do I be more innovative? We've worked with some customers who have gained uh, up to 30 to even 70% productivity savings. Um, by being able to move to the cloud because you don't have to wait around for infrastructure to be provisioned. And with these new wave of services, and hopefully you'll hear uh, a lot more later this week with some new services that we'll launch, 
being able to take advantage of those without having to worry about instantiating infrastructure and laying down software. More and more, as you know, data center leases are up or maybe there's some major hardware refreshes, I talk to also a lot of customers who are interested in closing down their data centers. They say, you know what, this is really hard stuff. We don't want to spend our energy racking and stacking servers. We'd like to move up the stack, take that capacity, and move it to um, other things like the innovation side of the, of the house. And we mentioned digital transformation. It's a funny term. I remember when I first heard this, I don't know, six, seven years ago, uh, remember chuckling very cynically, ha, 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 we've been working with computers for how long now? Uh, I've come to really um, appreciate and uh, understand that digital transformation is simply about delivering customer value at a pace um, with innovation that we've never seen before in technology and being able to leverage capabilities like the cloud or analytics to be able to deliver those experiences. And there are many more other reasons that customers are moving. I've definitely seen an inflection point in the industry and just the uh, interest that has come about in enterprises for um, migrating to the cloud. But we get a lot of questions. Um, for example, like, how do I create the business case? It used to be that some of the more maybe forward-leaning CIOs and CTOs just by sheer charisma and belief could motivate an organization to make a journey to the cloud. But more and more, everyone I talk to, despite well, lots of statements of cloud-first intents, they, everybody still has to go to the board or to the CFO and ask for money to be able to embark on this journey. Most people are not willing to bet their career on the accuracy of their CMDB, uh, so it takes some time to understand what's in their environment and not only understand what servers are there, but the dependencies between applications, who can help uh, in this era where over the last couple of decades, many companies outsourced away a lot of their capability, um, which is interesting because I came from Accenture and was part of that journey. But I think many organizations are feeling like maybe they went a little too far and they need some help to help uh, on that cloud journey or perhaps insource more capability back into IT organizations and a bunch of other things. And oftentimes, it's not the technology that we're talking about, it's things like people, process, and culture. There's some pretty big companies in the enterprise space who have been moving. News Corp has an amazing story in being able to move from 56 data centers down to six, saving over $100 million uh, in that process. To Anel, which is a, a utility company based in, in Italy, where they moved 5,500 servers in a span of nine months. It's probably the fastest uh, story of migration that I've heard, where they've reaped benefits in 50% storage costs um, and the speed of provisioning new infrastructure. To Capital One, who's really transformed themselves uh, from a retail banking institution to really being kind of more like a high-tech institution with the number of software engineers that they've trained. They've trained thousands of their engineers and certified them on the AWS platform because of just their belief and the agility and innovation that the cloud unlocks for them. To companies like Ancestry, who've moved uh, 10 petabytes of data, uh, their business, they're continuing to evolve what they're doing in terms of uh, their 2.6 million users and genealogy and moving into other spaces as well. To even 
public sector institutions like FINRA. So FINRA, if you're not aware of them, they monitor the US equities market for things like fraud, insider trading. By moving to AWS, they've been able to process 37 billion events on a daily basis and be able to really uh, accelerate the queries and the analysis of that data by over 400 times. And there's lots of other customers, BP, um, GE, uh, Symantec, Ticketmaster. Uh, so we're seeing quite an uptick in very large-scale enterprises and the challenges that come with those enterprises that have built up tech debt over many, many decades of existence. So what I'd like to share with you is what's the kind of the overall process for migration? Every company is obviously unique. You have your own drivers for your business. But for the most part, I think you could say that the process looks roughly the same at the macro level. It usually starts with senior executive sponsorship, working with our account team, creating a business case, starting to invest in some foundational capabilities, to an exercise of portfolio discovery and planning, uh, which we'll talk a bit more about, to the, you know, what we'll call the migration factory stage. So once you understand what's in your environment, and you start to scope it out. There are different mechanisms that you can use to actually migrate your workloads, and we'll talk about some of the paths to the fact that every one of these applications or servers are going to have to land in some type of operating model. The operating model will be different in the cloud, and that's something that we work a lot with customers to work through and change their processes. And the fact that this is a continual process. You'll have to iterate on this. No one gets this right on the first go. Uh, Simon will get into a little bit more detail about some of the iterations that Dow Jones went through. And with each subsequent migration wave that you complete, perhaps it's the first data center that you close, uh, you'll continue to learn, adapt, and grow. So let's talk about the preparation stage. Executive sponsorship is super important. So what, what do we mean by executive sponsorship? Because oftentimes I'll come in to a customer and maybe things aren't not going as well as uh, they thought it should be going. And one of the first questions I ask is, who's your single-threaded leader over this uh, effort? And is that person someone with street cred in your organization? And is that someone who reports to the CIO or the, to the CTO? How much buy-in do you have across your business? Because oftentimes it's not just the CIO or CTO who can punch this thing across the line. You have to engage with legal, procurement, security. And the most forward-leaning institutions or enterprises have engaged with HR partners. Because as you begin to become well-versed and your workforce begins to change, their skill sets are going to change. Their roles are going to change. And therefore, you have to think about their career path. The JDs will change, or the job descriptions. These are things to consider as you begin to embark on this cloud journey. The next thing is to gain some foundational experience. We've seen some customers, even before committing to a large-scale migration, uh, try to uh, move some quick wins, uh, put some quick wins onto the board, uh, working with one customer where we have a 50 apps in 50 days challenge. And it's interesting because those kinds of efforts, I think, are really important because they kind of act as a bit of a wrecking ball uh, across, because you're going to have to deal with policy issues, security, network. And having some type of goal that's timelined can create that sense of urgency and really expose those, those um, inconsistencies in your organization on the people, process, and policy side. And it can really help accelerate that journey. So let's talk about some of these. The other super important aspect in any cloud journey 
is having a team. I often talk, sometimes run into organizations that say, oh yeah, we're, we're serious about the cloud. And I'll ask them about the leadership question, but then I'll also ask them, well, what's your team look like? Oh, well, they'll say, well, it's 10% of Bob and 20% of Jill's time, and that's our cloud team. I don't know about you, but you know, when I have hobbies, uh, and it occupies some small percentage of my time, but it's really difficult to make meaningful progress if it's kind of a hobby project. <clears throat> and so having a dedicated, focused team to begin your cloud journey is really important. I can't emphasize that enough. Ideally, it's cross-functional in nature, folks from your infrastructure organization, folks from your application side, perhaps application architects, networking. It's truly a multidisciplinary effort. It doesn't have to start big. We've seen teams that start with just a handful of people, three, four, five people. But having that dedication and that focus and the air cover from senior leadership is super important. Then there's the process aspect. As we mentioned, the, or as I mentioned, the uh, operating model is uh, really important to consider. Things are going to change. Our operations integration practice likes this kind of four-box model. But typically, when you think about operating model, it's these things around patching, monitoring, incident management. These things will have an opportunity to change. And we do work with organizations to tweak and evolve their, these kinds of processes. We also happen to have a service called AWS Managed Services uh, that was launched last year that can help offload that. Now, we're not trying to go and, and replace uh, the MSPs. There's a lot of other things that managed service providers uh, provide in terms of their full suite of services. But when you think about the kind of the really uh, the, the low-level heavy lifting around these kinds of things, uh, AMS can be a potentially great option. We actually use this at a particular customer because of the effort involved with tweaking your operating model around these processes and the fact that the AWS Managed Services team has already invested in the process, has achieved many certifications, HIPAA, SOC 1, SOC 2, uh, that can operate a very secure landing zone or a place where you're, your virtual data center, if you will, and have all these processes wired up, you can use that as a mechanism to bootstrap your migration, and as opposed to investing a lot of time up front to do this. And it's not a one-way door. So, we are, the customer that I mentioned before doing this 50 apps in 50 days initiative, they're landing it in, in uh, AMS, and they're gonna use it as an opportunity to learn, uh, to teach their organization, because their goal is to be eventually upskill the rest of the organization, and it remains to be seen how much they'll continue to use of AMS, but it's a great way to bootstrap your, your migration, and if you're interested in that, please talk to your account manager. And then finally, the technology. Uh, the landing zone, as we like to call it, You're the virtual data center. This is a super important part. Um, I will say that it's hard to get right in the get-go, and, and Simon will talk more about that. But really, this is about your account structure, your tagging taxonomy, uh, the networking design that you'll put in. The amazing thing about AWS is we provide you a ton of capability, a lot of uh, Lego building blocks, but it does take some effort and configuration of that that's tailored and suited to your particular environment. And then finally, the business case. And this is a super important component as well. Uh, these days, it seems like any migration at scale needs a business case. And so what do we mean by that? 
Every organization, as I mentioned before, has unique KPIs and drivers for your individual industries and verticals. But most people are not in an environment where they can ask for 50% more budget just because there's the pressure to be uh, in more innovative or more agile. Most organizations, their budgets are capped. So operational cost savings are really table stakes in any migration journey, even though the end goal and the objective is innovation and agility. Workforce productivity is what uh, most people are seeking. The reason why AWS was even created was because about in the early 2000s, there was a recognition that some of our engineers were spending up to 70% of their time dealing with infrastructure. And even though we, we are pretty good at operating infrastructure at scale, engineers were still spending an enormous amount of time dealing with infrastructure. And that was really the reason why Andy Jassy, who's our CEO, created the business case and pitched it to Jeff Bezos for the creation of AWS. Cost avoidance, the opportunity to not have to invest in that next hardware refresh. And operational resilience, this is something that uh, when I, we went through our journey, we didn't actually bake into our business case up front. We were sort of pleasantly surprised in our organization. I think it was something like, with a like-for-like -like lift and shift, exact same architecture, exact same uh, servers, we saw a 30% reduction in incidents, particularly around network. Uh, maybe that speaks more to our provider that we had uh, when, in our colo facility. But this is something that we see with many customers. Other aspects that you gain in terms of resiliency is being able to leverage AWS's region and availability zone architecture. So taking some web servers and spreading it across multiple availability zones automatically ups the resiliency. And there are many other capabilities like that. Um, I think Nike uh, coined this term disaster indifference by just being able to leverage some of the HA solutions that uh, AWS provides. To, of course, business agility. The ability to innovate and operate. It seems like every industry, every company these days um, is feeling the pressure to, to innovate. Uh, I don't think there's any company that is um, not affected by digital transformation. They're certainly being impacted more than others, uh, particularly media, banking. There's a number of other industries. We use this slide a lot. GE Oil and Gas did a really good job of baselining uh, really every dimension of what the factors that I just covered around agility and cost and resiliency and workforce productivity to where with their investment in the cloud, they're able to reach, reap uh, $14 million of year-over-year -year savings. I don't know if you know much about GE Oil and Gas, but with commodities prices uh, kind of dropping out over the last uh, five years, uh, they were under tremendous pressure to save costs, and that was their primary driver. But in addition to that, they were able to take advantage of the AWS cloud and its capabilities to not only save costs, but drive other aspects around innovation and agility. So let's go a little bit deeper into the migration process around portfolio discovery and planning. Like I mentioned, most people are not willing to bet their career on their CMDB. So most people have to go through an exercise of understanding what's in their environment. Very few organizations keep their architecture diagrams up to date. Uh, one of the things I would pass on as a best practice is one trap that sometimes I see organizations fall into is, okay, we don't really understand what we're doing. Let's just go super deep and try to un uncover and understand everything. 
every server, the characteristics of those servers. And what can happen is you get bogged down into this sort of analysis. What I recommend is kind of a two-phase pass at discovery. Just take the high-level metadata, the base server counts, uh, what you best know about the number of operating systems and whatnot, and take that information and use that for your planning and scoping purposes, as opposed to kind of getting too deep into the planning and discovery. And once you have identified the size of the prize and the business case opportunity, then move into some deeper dive um, discovery. We have a number of vendors that we work with and partner with, including some of our own tooling. Uh, customers will ask us, well, which one should we use? And, um, but it really depends. I would say each one of these tools have their own superpower, and it really depends on the needs that you have. Some are agent-less, some are agent-based. Some focus more on network discovery, where they can uh, analyze the traffic between infrastructure and applications, which can provide that high-fidelity uh, data model that's required for you to understand uh, how to prioritize, scope, and attack your migration. Uh, just to kind of call out a few of these, risk uh, networks help and Cloudscape help uh, automate content discovery for uh, an application portfolio. They work with Second Watch and Viacom uh, to plan a migration of 1,000 uh, applications across three different data centers. Uh, Cloudomize helped Nimble Commerce in terms of handling their, their sprawl of actually the cloud. Uh, so it's not just for your on-premise system. Sometimes if uh, not, investment, not enough investment has been made on the AWS side, the sprawl can not only happen on-prem, but it can actually happen in AWS. Uh, TSO Logic is another partner of ours, and they're really good at uh, more of the business case aspects and some of the recommendation engines in analyzing infrastructure and recommending the infrastructure that you should be provisioning in AWS. Let's move to the, the migration factory, if you will. There are six patterns of migration that we typically share. It's a riff off of the Gartner 5R framework uh, that was released in 2011. Uh, don't ask me which R we introduced. I, I, I honestly don't know. Uh, but usually it starts with rehost, lift and shift. Some organizations say, you know what, Joe, we don't want to do uh, our mess for less in the cloud. We're only going to focus on re-architecture. I'll tell you, um, rehosting is a great strategy. It can not only help you save costs, but we mentioned the resiliency, but I think it's also a great way to uh, help modernize your architectures. The uh, mental model that I have is it's sort of like having a fish in this goldfish bowl, and no offense to anybody's data centers that you've uh, built up over the years, but by moving to the cloud, it's sort of like dropping that fish into the ocean. The resources that are available to nourish that fish uh, open up dramatically when you move to the cloud. We had an application, just to share one story, uh, that had a really horrible user experience, but it was mission critical to the business, and the team and the business was very reluctant uh, to touch it for fear of it breaking. One of the things that we did, though, is we stood up an Elasticsearch instance, and we said, hey, we can use the cloud, stand up an Elasticsearch instance, which is a solar-based technology, and pump the data into that. It's got a great REST-based uh, interface. And we just do it with a minor refactor of the UI. You now have this practically Google-like search experience for that application. And the business was completely thrilled when that was shown to them 
particularly because it didn't take a long time and they didn't have to touch a lot of application logic. It's just one simple example of how even by moving your applications to the cloud, it can help with even your modernization of those applications. We have many tools that can help with the automation of the movement of those uh, tools or those servers and those applications. And certainly many organizations will uh, do a f their first few manually as, and begin to understand the process for uh, how to engage in that. The other path is a replatform. We're seeing companies um, maybe perhaps upgrade their operating system because it's too old to being able to leverage services like our relational database service. Uh, I don't know about you guys who've managed databases, it's hard. Patching, not only do you have to patch the underlying infrastructure, but you all have to constantly patch the, the database engine. And uh, we took a hard look at this as well um, because we thought we could potentially get two-thirds savings by simply being able to leverage some of these managed services. There's certainly the option to repurchase. Why carry over systems that you don't need to uh, invest in? Being able to use services like Salesforce or Workday or SuccessFactors. And then certainly re-architecture is an option and being able to leverage some of the services like Lambda and DynamoDB. Anytime you go through these kind of rationalization and analysis exercises, you usually find, what, five, maybe 10% of your servers are actually unused. You can just simply turn them off. And usually there's also some remnant that might be a little bit harder to, to deal with. Uh, we still see plenty of mainframes and AS400s and I-series still kind of running out there. What I would say in terms of best practice is a balanced approach, not over-indexing on one or the other, uh, and being able to be holistic in your approach. And there are tooling and algorithms that we actually have available in, in addition to our experience that can actually help recommend different paths as you're analyzing your portfolio. There is a spectrum of, uh, I guess, complexity in these migrations, certainly coming from a VMware, uh, Hyper-V type environment, x86-based workloads is uh, pretty easy, I would say, in the grand scheme of things. And certainly on the other end, you have things like mainframes. It is something that we're gaining more and more experience on. There are emulators that exist. Uh, there are conversions of uh, COBOL to Java. Uh, companies like WePro and TMaxSoft are investing heavily in this space to, of course, uh, re-architecture scenarios. So just wanted to cover some tooling that's available. Uh, we have a plethora of uh, app migration and automation tooling to help with the journey. Um, our server migration service, our database migration service, by the way, many of these services are two-way. It's not just about taking your workload to the cloud. You can actually uh, take them back. To uh, some data transfer uh, help that we can provide, uh, whether to S3 or using some of our storage gateways to move data from your uh, on-premise centers to the cloud, and things like Snowmobile uh, and Snowball, which are uh, awesome mechanisms to move massive amounts of data from your data centers to the cloud. We talked about some of our partners. The other thing that we're doing is we've invested in uh, a migration hub. So the other thing that our customers told us is, well, it's great that you have all these tools, but I'd love to have kind of one uh, mechanism to be able to view my, the progress of my, uh, my migrations and be able to see that orchestration. So we've inv invested in a new service called Migration Hub. Um, and we've also uh, last year released a application discovery service that you can leverage as well uh, that can work 
either independently or alongside some of our partner tooling. So just to kind of give you a sense of you know, how some of these um, tools have been used, you know, over a half million VMs have been migrated using our server migration service. Over 45,000 databases uh, have been migrated using our database migration service. Our Snowball appliances um, have traveled around the globe uh, equal to more than 250 times. It's a product uh, and service that's really, really uh, been uh, embraced. And a number of interesting cases, not only for data transfer out of data centers, but even for things like edge computing, where uh, some oceanographic research institutions are taking snowballs and sending them down uh, into the ocean to collect data and then bringing that back up and then uplinking it to AWS for, for processing. Some of the organizational strategies. Um, I mentioned the Cloud Center of Excellence. One of the things you should expect is your Cloud Center of Excellence or your cloud team will evolve. Some of the things that they may be working on depending on your migration approach. If you're gonna, for example, do white glove migrations, you usually have your migration factory. Some customers do uh, advocate and go for a more DIY approach, enabling their teams with the tooling so they can do self-service migration. There's the platform engineering aspect of configuring AWS. It's not a one and done activity. It's something that you will have to iterate on to things like cost management. And as your migration scales, you know, you have to expect that your team will scale. I was talking with one customer and they were really challenged because they have a really small team, but the expectations are very large. So uh, we're happy to help provide some data points and some organizational models for you. Uh, if you're looking for some proof points that says, hey, my business won't let me hire, you know, the staff that I need to embark on this journey and certainly happy to uh, help out with that. I think another important best practice is visibility. I came from a pretty heavy scorecarding culture at Accenture. Uh, there was sort of no better mechanism to motivate people to move than some public shaming. Uh, so we see a lot of uh, organizations use scorecards like this, whether it's the training and certification exercise or the migration process across different portfolios. Uh, there's nothing like a bit of friendly competition to help spur uh, the movement of, of uh, of servers and applications. So as you scale this, we mentioned, uh, you'll find yourself having to iterate. So what I'd love to do is hand the mic over to my friend Simon uh, and talk a bit about the Dow Jones story. Good morning, thank you, Joe. Um, my name is Simon Clark. I'm uh, head of infrastructure and operations for Dow Jones. Dow Jones, um, is a News Corp company. It employs about 6,000 people in 85 locations worldwide. Dow Jones powers the professional world um, with data, news, and analytic tools, products, and services. You would know us through publications like the Wall Street Journal, Barron's, and Market Watch on the consumer side, and on the business side with Factiva, News Plus, Risk and Compliance, and Newswise. So what I'm gonna do over these next couple of slides is actually take you through um, the cloud journey that Dow Jones has embarked on um, and some of the iterations that we've gone through and the lessons we've learned through these iterations going forwards. So I'm gonna give you some context to our cloud journey. It started back in about 2013. The then CTO of News Corp was Paul Chisra and he set out with this um, vision that, that all the News Corp companies would have 75% of their compute in the cloud within three years. So that, to Joe's point earlier, is executive sponsorship. So, you know, we had that big box, we had executive sponsorship, but, you know, what were the actual business drivers that we could actually build um, a business case around? Well, 
I don't know about you, but aging hardware is an issue. And aging hardware, especially when your servers are 10 plus years old, they cause incidents, right? So who actually wants to go and invest in more physical hardware when you could actually move out to the cloud? So then again, so you get operational resiliency and you get cost avoidance. So there's one business case there. As Joe mentioned earlier, the big drive for News Corp was actually to consolidate our data centers. So why, for those applications we couldn't move to a data center, we move those to the cloud. And again, saving more money. And I think a key thing to Joe's point earlier, digital transformation. Um, the Wall Street Journal, back in 2013, we started noticing that people were actually moving more and more to a digital experience, and less and less people actually reading a newspaper. And that trend continues, and in fact, last year we had that tipping point of where more people actually read digital than they do print. So we had to invest in actually, and basically, create a business agility for um, Wall Street Journal to be a digitized product, but that also gave us then the scalability to actually respond to major news events and so we could, which we could never have in the physical data center before. And that's where cloud really drove up business transformation. So in our first iteration, and I really love this model of, um, of people, process, and tech. It's worked for me throughout my professional career. So we had the executive sponsorship from News Corp. The Dow Jones leadership team all had performance objectives to hit uh, the target. We actually managed the, the cloud transformation and the initial phase of this um, via a partner called Vertusa, who's a, an Amazon premium partner. And they really helped us with our kind of migration planning of the kind of 1,200 applications we have and 11,000 plus, 11, plus servers we have. The output of that discovery process really was a program roadmap. And to Joe's point about scorecards, that then defined the plan, our milestones of how we were going to get to 75% and at what point, so we could benchmark ourselves. Vertusa also helped us actually uh, create our migration patterns of how we're going to migrate to the cloud, and also the resource models and the cost models associated with that. One of the things, the, the engagement with the application teams uh, happened to actually understand what the migrations would actually mean to them and the amount of work they'd have to put into that. And what actually happened was Vertusa really became our cloud center of excellence, um, which then with very limited engagement from the infrastructure and the operations teams. And we're going to talk about that in the second iteration and what we did to address that. The kind of migrations we did in this initial iteration really were lift and shift. You know, how do we move our VMs to the cloud? Replatforming, how do we move kind of edge workloads? You know, we had data centers out uh, in Minneapolis and Chicopee. You know, how do we consolidate that and move that to the cloud? And then finally, as I mentioned before, the Wall Street Journal. How do we actually re-architect that to become um, a, a digital product in the cloud with um, continuous integration and deployment capabilities as well. In the first iteration, the actual processes we had were not standardized. The deployment and provisioning varied by the, um, the application, um, and really the engineering teams carried on the kind of processes they had before. In terms of cost monitoring, well, cost, our cost was actually more about um, cost monitoring rather than cost optimization using um, cloud health. One thing we did do to actually drive down and keep some control over our costs was actually buy reserved instances from Amazon to actually manage, that, uh, manage our cost profile going forwards. The other thing I say about cost, and as you embark on your cloud journey, is you're going from a server, uh, server environment which is capital intensive to an OPEX environment which is a cloud. So that's something to consider in the conversations with your CFOs in terms of how you need to flex your budget. And I think the other thing you need to consider um, going forwards with cost is, sorry, I just lost my train of thought. So, <laughs> so anyway, moving on to tech, 
uh, the initial text structure, um, we actually started out with four accounts. Um, and two of those accounts um, were actually shared accounts. So with great power comes great responsibility. So as more and more applications went to these shared accounts, they had the admin rights to use those accounts and actually make changes. As more and more applications came in and more and more people had these admin rights, the actual potential blast radius of a change became very large. So we had to do something about that. We also started hitting some internal limits within AWS in terms of actually peering um, our VPC structures. And back then when we started our um, migrations, we actually use VPN rather than um, Direct Connect. So it's really important to get that kind of Direct Connect back to your, um, back to your data centers. And then finally, we moved um, a lot of our um, Active Directory to the cloud to actually help us there. So at the end of our first iteration, you know, we were successful. We moved a lot to the cloud. But what we actually created was what we now refer to as our legacy cloud. Yes, such a term can exist. So moving on to um, iteration two, um, I would call this the landing zone, the, the second coming of cloud in Dow Jones. And I think really the key thing we did here was actually work with Vitusa and actually create a cloud operating model. You know, what, what roles and responsibilities do you need in the organization? What skills do you need in the organization? Who is, who's going to perform those? Based upon this kind of racy model, we then actually created um, a cloud engineering team and a cloud operations team to actually manage cloud migrations going forwards. And this was really to enable us to actually, because cloud is a core competency that your organization should have, and you need to invest in your people. Vertusa did a fantastic job as a partner leading our migrations, but we needed to invest in our own capabilities uh, to manage cloud going forwards. So what we've actually done is we've actually embedded the engineering, um, the actual infrastructure and operations teams into the cloud migrations, um, into landing zones. And that really gives those teams and uh, makes them kind of cloud relevant and also cloud capable. Also, we've also invested with um, AWS, our account team. Uh, we've provisioned that everybody in technology has access to AWS Essentials, so anybody can access that course free of charge. And we've also worked out, um, by looking at a kind of RACI model, what skills and knowledge and education people within our teams and our retained organization need. And we actually then provide training to those teams as well. So moving on to process, um, you know, I'm a big process guy. I came from an operations background before doing this job. And the big question here is, how big should the O be in DevOps? Um, developers don't like being called up at 3 o'clock in the morning. Um, you know, so we need to think about how big is the operations team going to be. And what we've actually embarked on in Dow Jones is what we call the uh, cloud process reengineering program. And we've actually identified 15 processes that we need to have in place to actually manage cloud successfully versus on-premise. And we've really kind of focused initially in that first wave on six. And I think it goes back to um, the landing zones. You know, I really, you should really focus on your tagging um, standards and your structure and the policies around um, tagging in your, in your landing zones. This will help you drive um, enforcement. Uh, you can use policy engines to actually then say, if you don't meet certain standards, we'll actually spin your instance down. But it also helps drive cost optimization as well. And just to give you an example, we recently, um, in our dev share environment, um, enforced tagging. And we actually reduced our daily cost by over $1,200 a day. Now, it doesn't sound a lot, but you multiply by 365 days, that's quite a lot of saving. And that's just in a pre-production environment. 
Also, tagging is so important. As Joe mentioned before, who'd bet their career in a CMDB? Well, our CMDB was pretty void of any cloud assets. And we've actually worked closely with, um, and we've actually engaged with Amazon ProServe. And we've actually now just piloted how we've integrated um, Amazon into our Remedy CMDB um, using CloudTrail and, um, and Config. So that's, that's an opportunity there. Also, monitoring and logging, you know, we started into conversations about when do we use CloudWatch, when do we use new Relic um, infrastructure, and how do you then integrate those back into your monitor of monitors from an operations perspective. Change management, you know, with continuous integration and deployment, how do you reflect change into your CMDB? And then, really, from a service catalog perspective, how do you actually make that service catalog available to technology to um, engage for new requests or engage for support? And ultimately, from a security perspective, you know, it's very important to have a defined patching strategy. We're now looking to move to a kind of monthly cadence for patching um, and redeploying our AMIs back into the landing zones to keep the latest policies up to date in those environments. And I think another key thing is the use of automation. Uh, we use uh, Terraform to actually deploy our landing zones. And when we first started, it took four weeks to provision an account into Amazon for a, for a new application. We're now down to the point where it's below a week uh, with the use of automation and scripting. And I think the other thing here um, to consider is the migration process. When we started our migration journey, um, a lot of the AWS capabilities with Migration Hub did not exist. If I was actually doing it today, I would actually definitely look at those services. And in fact, for our database freedom project, we're actually looking at using that. But that's another story. And then finally, uh, from a technology perspective, really think about uh, your account strategy. How many accounts do you want? Um, we've actually gone from four accounts now up to 120 accounts within AWS. And you know, the key thing about this is it, you, know, you need to think about this, and you also need to think about your landing zones, because landing zones are so important. You know, landing zones are infrastructure as code. That is going to give your application engineering teams the, the boundaries and the policies to work within which can be enforced from a security perspective as well. One of the things about security um, is really important, which is you know, visibility of um, data. And we recently had a, an issue where we had some overexposure of some data within our S3 bucket. And we actually worked with our um, InfoSec team, and we actually developed a own homegrown solution called Hammer, which actually assesses our AWS environment, looks for overexposure of S3 buckets. It looks for um, issues with our EC2 configurations and actually gives the engineering teams a chance to remediate that. And if it doesn't, within a certain period of time, we automatically uh, resolve those exposures um, using this tool. And Hammer is something we're actually looking at open sourcing, uh, which will be open to anybody here in this audience. So in conclusion, we've gone through two iterations um, of cloud, our initial migrations, and then the second coming of cloud with landing zone. We're not finished yet. Um, there will be more iterations. You know, we've now created a, a foundation uh, for continuous growth. We're currently 62% of our journey uh, towards, the seven, you know, towards our migration of a total of 75% um, to the cloud. And the final thing I've mentioned is, with that 75%, we've got to remember that 25% of our estate is going to be left in data centers. So that's another conversation to have with your CFO as well, to say, look, we're going to have to continuously invest in our server estate as well, in addition to cloud. So with that, I'm going to hand back to Joe. All right, great. Um, thank you so much, Simon. Uh, it was awesome to, I think, 
hear from Simon, it was also interesting that in our journey uh, from my time before AWS, a lot of the parallels and some of the same challenges that we face, particularly as you uh, embark on that journey and have some migrations underneath your belt. And I think it's awesome to have some companies to engage with and speak with who've uh, faced some similar challenges. So thank you so much. Um, I'll try to speed through these slides because I'd love to leave some time uh, for questions and some Q&A from the audience. Every migration uh, does start with a hybrid scenario using uh, something like VPC and a VPN. Uh, as Simon mentioned, when you start to get serious, usually you have to invest in something like Direct Connect, which are uh, uh, done by providers like uh, Equinix and other networking providers. And then that picture will evolve. Uh, we also have more and more tools that can support not only the AWS cloud services, but also some of your on-prem data services, things like uh, our DevOps tooling around code commit and code deploy or code pipeline. And certainly, a lot of our vendor tooling can operate well across these environments now. So whether you're talking about an app dynamics or a new relic or a service now to be able to manage your catalog across your data centers. You can also use platforms you already know. Uh, our VMware offering, which is provided by um, our friends at VMware, where you can essentially vMotion your servers right into AWS. It's an offering that they manage. is a great way to get started to being able to use platforms like OpenShift or Pivotal Cloud Foundry. And these are all great uh, and friendly environments to run on AWS. There's a lot out there that you have to know. Uh, don't expect everyone to uh, come away and memorize all these aspects. It's the reason why we've invested in a migration acceleration program. We've packaged up all of these steps, the best practices and methodology to make available to you as customers. We've all also invested in our partner ecosystem around those tools like RISC and TSO Logic, Adadata and Cloudomize, to GSIs and Born in the Cloud SIs, and our own ProServe organization. We also have training that's available for your organization. Training is an extremely important component to enable your people to get the skills that they need to operate in the cloud. And some investment. We understand that the migration bubble, as you do the migration to AWS, can be sometimes a challenge. And this mechanism is a great way to help make the business case tilt more in your favor to help you make the case in your organization. What does this look like? We usually start with that business case exercise, either done by our cloud economics team or a pro-server organization or partners. We usually start with a migration readiness assessment. And many times the focus of the assessment is not on the technology, but actually on the people in the process. How accurate is your CMDB? Uh, let's take a look at some of your security processes. How well documented are your architectures? Things of that nature. And then we move into a, a foundation building and. Um, uh, migration readiness and planning. It can include something like those quick wins that I mentioned, but it also moves into preparing your organization, helping you set up your cloud center of excellence, being able to start to tailor and design your landing zone uh, to tweaking your, both your operations and security processes and models. And then finally, helping you with your migrations, either through uh, your own resources and your teams or perhaps bringing in a partner. We do have a partner migration competency. Uh, it's a pretty high standard uh, that we're working with the ecosystem 
to make sure that we can confidently refer people to your organization that will help you in the journey and understands AWS well. Just to give you a few examples, Accenture is the one who helped Enel with that 5,500 server migration in nine months. They're also helping Coca-Cola out with their 600 workloads to organizations uh, like uh, Cloud Technology Partners who help Metaxas with their migration and moving 70% of what they have to AWS to other organizations like Slalom who help Travis Perkins in their migration story. And there are many others and many more who are coming on board uh, and basically it's a co-investment by both organizations and resources and training uh, to help make sure that we're being consistent with all our customers on how to approach migrations. I mentioned training. We do have a two-day instructor-led training course for migrating to AWS. Uh, that might be something that's of interest to everyone here. And with that, I'd like to close. Thanks again for your time. Um, if you have any questions, please come up to the mic. This um, presentation is being simulcast. Uh, I'd love to hear any questions that's on your mind that either uh, Simon or myself can answer. So if you wouldn't mind stepping up to the mic, uh, appreciate that. Thank you. There's a question here. Yeah. Uh, quickly, I'm not sure if there are any CFOs or uh, finance team members here, but explaining to CFO uh, the need to refresh hardware is sometimes challenging. Yep. They always want to juice the hardware out, right? Yep. Um, they want to go five years, ten years. Um, so do you have any white papers, any data behind as the hardware ages out, you know, your uptime starts going down, but... I mean, is there any real data that we can share with? Uh, yeah, so there's, um, we do have data. Um, we have uh, some assets that we can share. We also have, uh, we've de developed some board level materials uh, to share with our customers because oftentimes we understand the need to educate not just, uh, you know, kind of all business partners, including the CFO. So that is something that you can work with your account uh, manager to get at. But we do have both of those assets. Um, and we also have a team that is engaged specifically on CFO conversations. And it is not uncommon for CFOs or legal or procurement to actually come to Seattle for an executive briefing center session. Uh, that's been a great way to get the whole business on board. So I encourage you to pursue those options, but just to make you aware of some choices that you have there. Okay, great, great question. Well, one more sure. quick question, if you don't mind. Um, so the other aspect of moving dollar budgets from CapEx to OpEx, right, uh, it's, it's, it's usually a challenge because once OpEx starts going up, have you considered an option where RI dollars can be put into the CapEx bucket, or is that a no-no from the accounting teams? Yeah, so um, we're, given that we're not an auditor, uh, we are not allowed to give guidance on those kinds of things. Uh, I would encourage you to talk to your auditor uh, for your organization. Um, we have seen some movement and uh, looking at that from the regulatory agencies who uh, define those rules. It is something that um, seems to happen a little bit more on a case-by-case -case basis, but I would encourage you to talk to your auditors about what are the... Uh, sort of the parameters in which you can capitalize RIs, because I do know that I, I would say maybe one in five organizations I talk to say that CapEx to OpEx movement is actually not a good thing, uh, particularly for those EBITDA-sensitive companies. So uh, that's something that I would just ask that you work with your uh, accounting firm to validate. I would love to talk to anyone who has done it to here uh, in this group, but what did your team do? I mean, did they 
go continue with OPEX for RIs or? So what we actually did is we, we purchased the RIs, but we actually then spread it across a, a period of time. So we didn't just take the OPEX hit in one go. We actually spread it across um, a period of, of years. Okay. So that's how we did it from a financial perspective. All right. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Question over here? Yeah. Uh, I'm Shannon. I actually work for Solo. Um, in your presentation, you both mentioned uh, percents that you're migrating towards for each Accenture and Dow Jones. Um, what do you find in your experience with the different migrations that you've worked through that organizations consistently don't migrate into the cloud, like the processes and technology and operations that they still maintain themselves? Is there a consistency on that? Sorry, I'm not, maybe I'm not quite following the question. So like when you said Accenture migrated 90% and Dow Jones is targeting 75%, yep. what's like the 10% and the 25%, those things that aren't getting migrated? Is there a consistency that you find in organizations of the things that they don't migrate to? The oh, class? I see, I see, yeah. okay. Um, so I would say, uh, particularly in lift and shift scenarios, there's a couple things that I've, I've seen. Uh, there's one option where you lift and shift very quickly, but you're also lifting and shifting your operating model. Organizations that have decent operational hygiene, meaning everything's sort of the same across their environments, it, it will feel kind of all the same, even with the stuff that you leave behind. Other organizations um, have a bit more uh, diversity in processes, um, and basically they're looking the cloud to help sort of clean that up. And so what they'll often do is uh, use that as an opportunity to essentially do kind of ops efficiency and ops um, uh, optimization and automation as they move to the cloud. And of course, when you do that, whatever you leave behind is gonna be very different than what you have in the cloud. Sure. So there's no right or wrong answer. It really depends on what your organizational objectives are. Part of the reason why we are so uh, focused on doing a readiness assessment is so we like to understand those things so that we can make the best recommendation okay. for your organization. So you find that what people leave behind can kind of vary from company to company? Then? Absolutely, okay. absolutely. Cool. Yeah, and you know, it, people have various reasons for what they leave behind. Uh, you know, we had our own reasons for some stuff that we left behind, it, but some of it oftentimes is the technology, like mainframes and okay. AS400s, sure. which obviously are gonna be very different than yeah. x86-based workloads. Cool, thank you. Yeah, you're very welcome. Hi there, I'm Jessica with Periveda Solutions, and I too have seen the phenomena of the hobby projects that goes on. So aside from that, what has been the, the biggest challenge you guys have faced when trying to transform your team into, from what they're doing today to this new technology and skill set, and what was the best way to overcome that? Yeah, Simon, you, you Sure, I, I, I genuinely think, um, look at the operating model, understanding what roles you need in the organization um, in terms of the cloud, and you know, getting down to that kind of race because you, you do need, partners are important, but you need to invest in your people. Um, you know, we really did get down to the level of, and, and we've had to invest in people as well. Sometimes those skills don't exist in your environment. Uh, you actually have to go out and actually buy them into the organization, recruit them into the organization, which we've done. Um, but again, there's a lot of people, you've got to make your infrastructure teams kind of cloud capable. And that's what I meant about the kind of the skill gaps assessments and actually then saying what training do they need to actually bring them up. But there's nothing like actual hands-on experience and the fact that my infrastructure teams now are actually helping build and then deploy the landing zones. It gives them the expertise of how, what they're going to support um, in that production environment. So I think just get them involved right from the get-go, but understand how you're going to utilize a partner and how you retain that information and that knowledge in the organization and not just with the partner. Maybe just to add to that, I would just say that um, 
this is where change management frameworks really help uh, greatly in this, this journey because it is uh, as much a people change as it is a technology change. Uh, so maybe the mental model that I would give to you is there's kind of like, I don't know, a few concentric circles of impact that you need to consider. The first is your cloud center of excellence and what you need to do to enable them. Then it's your infrastructure organization. We had, uh, I've seen this mantra of, you know, let's move our folks from being admins to engineers. And so, for example, Capital One completely redefined their infrastructure roles uh, to be more like software engineering-like from the most junior roles all the way to their tech fellows. Then you move into the application area. Uh, usually coupled with cloud, we see a lot of move to DevOps and Agile uh, in that journey. That's another kind of wave of change. And then the most kind of like, uh, you know, the most kind of bleeding edge organizations are even engaging with the business where how they finance projects are changing, moving to from a project mindset to a product mindset. So the, the waves of change can ripple throughout the entire business. Uh, I think there are some awesome change management frameworks that can help with that. Uh, and if you're coming from an organization that used to that, it's an easier jump. Uh, it's not just a hosting arbitrage kind of endeavor. Uh, the people and the process change can be quite dramatic, and there are some different ways that we can deal with that. I actually did a chalk talk yesterday on people and cultural change, and, and it's a really hot topic. Great, thank you. Mm -hmm. Hi, uh, my name is Santosh. Um, my question is regarding the migration, migrating tools. Um, I saw in the list of the tools um, I didn't see SMS listed out over there. Probably uh, uh, it's not listed or I might have missed it. Uh, my question is, um, when we design the solution for the migrations, uh, is there any criteria on what basis we can use SMS versus I go for a double take or I go for a TSO or something, you know, just to give a good uh, business case? Yeah, so um, it really depends on the partner uh, and who you engage with. Um, our ProServe organization partners usually have a set of tools that they're comfortable with and enough to be able to handle, I would say, most migration scenarios. Um, from a lift and shift perspective for like x86, I think there's a pretty uh, good list of tools that people have come to depend on. Uh, a lot of them are kind of really kind of DR technology based. Uh, the way we did it is you stand up an uh, AMI in AWS you replicate the data from the server over to that over a period of time. You basically you know, shut down the old system, let the data kind of you know, make its way over, do a quick checkout, DNS flip, boom. That's how most of these kind of tools do work. Um, but if you're looking for some more detailed prescription, that's something that we can connect you with um, some of our partners or ProServe to help you through that selection process. Like I said, they each have sort of their superpower, so it's hard to say, you know, oh, you should use this one or that one without knowing a little bit more about your environment. Right, probably some of the use cases might really help out, um, like at, at just a high level, not really at the deep, but um, deciding on, you know, like certain percentage of the servers we can go for SMS versus I can go for the others, just to give a, you know, a good business case. So are there any use cases which I could refer to? Uh, we do. I don't know if we've had situations where it's like, um, the, you know, use, this for this tooling and this for that. Um, for the most part, the, the, the environments that I've seen with customers in my own is generally they pick one tool for at least the lift and shift type migrations. Uh, because then also it's about making sure you get efficiency with your teams who are actually doing the migration, right? Because uh, it takes some time to kind of get good and going. Uh, we basically set a bus schedule uh, every week, or some companies do it every month, some people do it uh, twice a month and they have migration parties. And basically, you know, you come, you do that checkout, you cut over, and then you kick anything out that didn't make it. Um, we'd also see companies mobilize like a small, like kind of on-call team. 
you'll inevitably miss a firewall rule or you miss a port opening. So being able to have those resources uh, right there on the spot who can make those changes. Uh, and then anything when it gets, you know, I used to have this mantra, no scrambling on bridge calls. The minute people start thinking on their feet, bad stuff happens, right? So you basically say, <laughs> oh, we'll call failure. You get kicked to the end of the line and you move on. Okay. Thank you. Yep. Yeah, hi. Uh, Craig Burney. Uh, had a question uh, regarding your security ops and infrastructure cloud engineering team and uh, how you integrate those into your development teams. Um, do you take a more prescriptive approach where you sort of uh, pre-can like Terraform templates and say this is what you should be using or do you integrate your cloud engineering teams into the development teams in like a DevOps fashion? We actually um, a bit more prescriptive so that's the kind of purpose of landing zones. It creates these policies, and the security is actually baked into uh, the AMIs. So it gives them a kind of, because what we want to do with cloud is give the engineering teams the flexibility, um, but with guardrails, and that's what we do. Okay, thank you. Yeah, there's uh, our ProServe team also socializes this concept of DevSecOps. So how do you, and, uh, using DevOps uh, processes and technology, wire in security uh, from the get-go so that developers and operators don't have to worry about that sort of after the fact, and that's something that's picking up quite a bit of steam. Hey, Joe. My name is Joe as well. On your spectrum of complexity slide, you showed mainframes being taken the longest to get there and mm -hmm. the most complex. Has anybody that you're aware of successfully migrated or modernized their mainframes that started out as a legacy mainframe shop? Yep. So we do have a few proof points. Uh, I'm happy to um, share with you some of those later. but. Um, because it's on the harder scale, there's obviously less of those proof points. It's not in the you know, many, many hundreds of uh, organizations that have done data center scale migrations. So we are working with a number of companies uh, across those three uh, migration paths for uh, mainframes, uh, emulation. So we do have some customers already running uh, mainframe emulators on AWS. We have some companies who've done the uh, COBOL to you know, your language of choice conversions. And then, of course, there's some who are undergoing re-architectures. Uh, I was just talking to my brother, who uh, is in a company that has a mainframe. I think the challenge a lot of times with mainframe re-architectures is that once people start to realize, hey, we're going to do this, uh, it just sort of, it's more kind of like typical block and tackling issues. It's just like, hey, we're going to get off the mainframe. And then the requirements just pile on and just, just kills the project. Uh, so I think that's the challenge of um, using more like uh, agile, and DevOps and that journey so that, you know, and trying to work with the business that we're like, hey, we're not going to be able to do this big bang conversion of the mainframe and use more of the strangling the monolith pattern and doing MVP and iterating up to where you can eventually shut down the mainframe. So that's something that I'm paying more close attention to because banking, retail, insurance, lots of mainframes still running around. Thank you. Well, thanks for sticking around for those of you who are uh, here for the Q&A and uh, have fun at reInvent.